Welcome to Read By, where today's finest authors read what matters to them, from their homes to yours. In this episode, Stacey Schiff, author of The Witches, reads from Kingsley Amos's novel, Lucky Jim. To learn more from Schiff about her choice, check out the episode description. And now, Read By, Stacey Schiff. Here then is Jim Dixon, the less-than-ideal house guest in his room from Lucky Jim. He began getting into bed, his four surviving cigarettes. Had he really smoked twelve that evening? Lay in their packet on a polished table at the bedhead, accompanied by matches, the Bakelite mug of water, and an ashtray from the mantelpiece. A temporary inability to raise his second foot onto the bed let him know what had been the secondary effect of drinking all that water. It had made him drunk. This became a primary effect when he lay in bed. On the fluttering mantelpiece was a small china effigy, the representation, in a squatting position, of a well-known oriental religious figure. Had Welch put it there as a silent sermon to him on the merits of the contemplative life? If so, the message had come too late. He reached up and turned off the light by the hanging switch above his head. The room began to rise upwards from the right-hand bottom corner of the bed, and yet seemed to keep in the same position. He threw back the covers and sat on the edge of the bed, his legs hanging. The room composed itself to rest. After a few moments, he swung his legs back and lay down. The room lifted. He put his feet to the floor. The room stayed still. He put his legs on the bed but didn't lie down. The room moved. He sat on the edge of the bed. Nothing. He put one leg up on the bed. Something. In fact, a great deal. He was evidently in a highly critical condition. Swearing hoarsely, he heaped up the pillows, half lay, half sat against them, and dangled his legs half over the edge of the bed. In this position, he was able to lower himself, gingerly, into sleep. Dixon was alive again. Consciousness was upon him before he could get out of the way. Not for him the slow, gracious wandering from the halls of sleep, but a summary, forcible ejection. He lay sprawled, too wicked to move, spewed up like a broken spider crab on the tarry shingle of the morning. The light did him harm, but not as much as looking at things did. He resolved, having done it once, never to move his eyeballs again. A dusty thudding in his head made the scene before him beat like a pulse. His mouth had been used as a latrine by some small creature of the night and then as its mausoleum. During the night, too, he'd somehow been on a cross-country run and then been expertly beaten up by secret police. He felt bad. He reached out for and put on his glasses. At once... He saw that something was wrong with the bedclothes immediately before his face. Endangering his chance of survival, he sat up a little, and what met his bursting eyes roused to a frenzy the tympanist in his head. A large, irregular area of the turn-back part of the sheet was missing. A smaller, but still considerable area of the turn-back part of the blanket was missing. An area about the size of the palm of his hand in the main part of the top blanket was missing. Through the three holes, which appropriately enough had black borders, he could see a dark brown mark on the second blanket. He ran a finger round a bit of the hole in the sheet, and when he looked at his finger, it bore a dark gray stain. That meant ash. Ash meant burning. Burning must mean cigarettes. Had this cigarette burnt itself out on the blanket? If not, where was it now? Nowhere on the bed, nor in it. He leaned over the side, gritting his teeth. A sunken brown channel ending in a fragment of discolored paper lay across a light patch in the pattern of a valuable-looking rug. This made him feel very unhappy, a feeling sensibly increased when he looked at the bedside table. This was marked by two black, charred grooves, grayish and shiny in parts, lying at right angles and stopping well short of the ashtray which held a single-used match. 
On the table were two unused matches. The remainder lay with the empty cigarette packet on the floor. The Bakelite mug was nowhere to be seen. Had he done all this himself, or had a wayfarer, a burglar, camped out in his room? Or was he the victim of some horla fond of tobacco? He thought that on the whole he must have done it himself, and wished he hadn't. Surely this would mean the loss of his job, especially if he failed to go to Mrs. Welch and confess what he'd done. And he knew already that he wouldn't be able to do that. There was no excuse which didn't consist of the inexcusable. An incendiary was no more pardonable when revealed as a drunkard as well. So much of a drunkard, moreover, that obligations to hosts and fellow guests and the counter-attraction of a chamber concert were as nothing compared with the lure of the drink. The only hope was that Welch wouldn't notice what his wife would presumably tell him about the burning of the bedclothes. But Welch had been known to notice things. The attack on his pupil's book in that essay, for example. But that had really been an attack on Welch himself. He couldn't much care what happened to sheets and blankets, which he wasn't actually using at the time. Dixon remembered thinking on an earlier occasion that to yaw drunkenly round the common room in Welch's presence, screeching obscenities, punching out the window panes, fouling the periodicals, would escape Welch's notice altogether, provided his own person remained inviolate. The memory in turn reminded him of a sentence in a book of Alfred Beasley's he'd once glanced at. A stimulus cannot be received by the mind unless it serves some need of the organism. He began laughing, an action he soon modified to a wince. He got out of bed and went into the bathroom. After a minute or two, he returned, eating toothpaste and carrying a safety razor blade. He started carefully cutting around the edges of the burnt areas of the bedclothes with the blade. He didn't know why he did this, but the operation did seem to improve the look of things. The cause of the disaster wasn't so immediately apparent. When all the edges were smooth and regular, he knelt down slowly, as if he had all at once become a very old man, and shaved the appropriate part of the rug. The debris from these modifications he stuffed into his jacket pocket, thinking that he'd have a bath and then go downstairs, and phone Bill Atkinson and ask him to come through with his message about the senior Dixons a good deal earlier than had been arranged. He sat on the bed for a moment to recover from his vertiginous exertions with the rug. Then, before he could rise, somebody, soon identifiable as male, came into the bathroom next door. He heard the clinking of a plug chain, then the swishing of tap water. Welch, or his son, or John's, was about to take a bath. Which one it was was soon settled by the upsurge of a deep, untrained voice into song. The piece was recognizable to Dixon as some skein of untiring facetiousness by filthy Mozart. Bertrand was surely unlikely to sing anything at all, and John's made no secret of his indifference to anything earlier than Richard Strauss. Very slowly, like a forest giant under the axe, Dixon heeled over sideways and came to rest with his hot face on the pillow. This, of course, would give him time to collect his thoughts. And that, of course, was just what he didn't want to do with his thoughts. The longer he could keep them apart from one another, especially the ones about Margaret, the better. For the first time, he couldn't avoid imagining what she'd say to him, if, any, if she, indeed she'd say anything, when he next saw her. He pushed his tongue down in front of his lower teeth, screwed up his nose as tightly as he could, and made gibbering motions with his mouth. How long would it be before he could persuade her first to open, then to empty her locker of reproaches, as preliminary to the huge struggle of getting her to listen to his apologies? Desperately, he tried to listen to Welch's song, to marvel at its matchless predictability, its austere, unswerving devotion to tedium. But it didn't work. Then he tried to feel pleased about the acceptance of his article. But all he could remember was Welch's seeming indifference on hearing the news, 
and his injunction, so exasperatingly like Beasley's, to get a definite date from him, Dixon, otherwise it's not much, not much. He sat up and by degrees worked his feet to the floor. There was an alternative to the Atkinson plan, the simpler, nicer one of clearing out at once without a word to anybody. That wouldn't really do, though, unless he cleared out as far as London. What was going on in London now? He began to take off his pajamas, deciding to omit his bath. Those wide streets and squares would be deserted at this time, except for a few lonely, hurrying figures. He could re-visualize it all from remembering a weekend leave during the war. He sighed. He might as well be thinking of Monte Carlo or Chinese Turkestan. Then, jigging on the rug with one foot out of, the other still in, his pajamas, thought of nothing but the pain that slopped through his head like water into a sandcastle. He clung to the mantelpiece, nearly displacing the squatting Oriental, crumpling like a shot film gunman. Had Chinese Turkestan its Margarets and Welches? Some minutes later, he was in the bathroom. Welch had left grime round the bath and steam on the mirror. After a little thought, Dixon stretched out a finger and wrote, Ned Welch is a soppy fool with a face like a pig's bum in the steam. Then he rubbed the glass with a towel and looked at himself. He didn't look too bad, really. Anyway, better than he felt. His hair, however, despite energetic brushing helped out by the use of a water-soaked nail brush, was already springing away from his scalp. He considered using soap as a pomatum, but decided against it, having in the past, several times, converted the short hairs at the sides and back of his head into the semblance of duck plumage by this expedient. His glasses seemed more goggle-like than usual. As always, though, he looked healthy, and he hoped, honest and kindly, he'd have to be content with that. He was all ready to slink down to the phone, when returning to the bedroom he again surveyed the mutilated bedclothes. They looked in some way unsatisfactory, he couldn't have said how. He went and locked the outer bathroom door, picked up the razor blade, and began again on the circumferences of the holes. This time he made jagged cuts into the material, little inlets from the great missing areas. Some pieces he almost severed. Finally he held the blade at right angles, and ran it quickly round the holes, roughening them up. He stood back from his work and decided the effect was perceptibly better. The disaster now seemed much less obviously the work of man and might, for a few seconds, be put down to some fulminant dry rot or the ravages of a colony of moths. He turned the rug round so that the shaven burn, without being actually hidden by a nearby chair, was nonetheless not far from it. He was considering taking the bedside table downstairs and later throwing it out of the bus on his journey back when a familiar voice came into oral range, singing in a way that suggested head-wagging jollity. It grew in volume, like the apprehension of something harmful or awful, until the locked bathroom door began to be shaken and its handle to be rattled. The singing stopped, but the rattling went on, was joined by kicking, even momentarily replaced by the thudding of what must be a shoulder. Welch hadn't thought in advance that the bathroom might bear signs of occupation by another when he wanted to get back into it himself. Why, in any case, did he want to get back into it? Nor did he soon realize it now. After trying several maneuvers to replace his first vain rattling of the handle, he returned his attention to a vain rattling of the handle. There was a final orgasm of shakings, knockings, thuddings, and rattlings. Then footsteps retreated, and a door closed. With tears of rage in his eyes, Dixon left the bedroom, first unintentionally treading on and shattering the Bakelite mug, which must have rolled out from under something into his path. Downstairs, he looked at the hall clock, 20 past 8, and went into the drawing room where the phone was. It was a good job that Atkinson got up early on Sundays to go out for the papers. He'd be able to catch him easily before he went. He picked up the phone. 
92Y's Red By is produced and commissioned by New York's 92Y Unterberg Poetry Center, a home for live readings and literature for over 80 years. To invite more authors into your home, subscribe to 92Y's Red By wherever you download podcasts. If you're able, please visit 92Y.org slash help now to donate to support 92Y and our new digital programming. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Find more great recordings at 92y.org slash redbind.